Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine. And I'm Stephen. And today we're very excited to have two of the original XJW YouTubers through podcasters. Um, welcome JT and Lady C from the XJW Critical Thinker channel. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> yeah, we just really want to thank you guys for inviting us on y'all guys' platform uh, because it's, it's important that we do this. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much for coming. Um, so um, I guess lots of our listeners will know you. Um, obviously, not all of our listeners are ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I think many are. Um, so uh, many will know your story, but it'd be nice to, to get to know you a bit more and, and maybe if you could give us your story. Um Obviously, you've got two stories, so um, if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of, of who you are and, um, yeah, how you were raised or how you became Jehovah's Witnesses, I suppose. Um, our experience is very similar to many people. Yeah. Uh, we, we had parents who got that knock on the door, and once again, uh, they were offered an opportunity to live in paradise, to have all their problems taken care of, um, it was the perfect package. Yeah. Uh, my mom at the time, uh, she had lost her grandmother. And so the wonderful resurrection hope, uh, living in paradise, that is what appealed to her. Um, and so at that point, that's where it got started. And from there, you know, I basically, because I was about five or six, I pretty much grew up literally in this organization uh, as a young child, right into my teenage and adult life. So I don't really remember much. We went to church maybe once or twice to a Baptist church, which is because okay. we were in the southern part of the United States. But that's basically it. It's, it's that basic Jehovah's Witness pattern that the Watchtower literally has down to a science. And then I, um, <clears throat> kind of similar to JT, um, my mother, her when she was growing up, her father had introduced them to this religion because they were... Um, proselytizing in their area to the point where my grandfather came home one day and threw the Christmas tree out. Hmm. But no one ever became a witness until years later. And it's interesting because my grandfather got baptized when he was 72 years old, even though he introduced the family to the religion. And I didn't realize how many people, it t how many lives it touched. But my mother got involved quite early, earlier than her siblings, because my brother was hit and killed by a car as a person was driving. And so they had promised my mom the resurrection hope. Mm -hmm. My mother reached out to Jehovah's Witnesses 
had a Jehovah's Witness funeral, even though she was not baptized. And it, it all came down from there. My dad was in the military. She ended up marrying a man who was um, in the military, United States Air Force. And we ended up moving. And every time we moved, my mom would contact Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. I never knew any other religion other right. than Jehovah's Witness. Um, my mom let me go to church one time. When I came home and told her what the sermon was, she said, you can't go back. She mm -hmm. said that those people don't know what they're talking about. So she so she got all you know caught up into Jehovah's Witness. But I've been knowing witnesses since I was about five because my mom was studying all that time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I got older. I grew up. I, I kept with the faith. I thought that this was the truth because of what they taught. And I decided that after I got out of high school, that that would be the chart that I would pass. That would be the, that would, that would be the path I would take. Mm -hmm. And I decided to get baptized. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, I ended up meeting JT. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you both went through school as as uh, witnesses then, I, I take it. Um, staying out of assemblies and not being able to do Christmas and all that good stuff that we um, we had to go through. What are your memories of all of that? Um, not good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a way, it's, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, Growing up in the first, second, third grade, you could not go to any of the celebrations. Parents would bring the cupcakes for their children for birthdays. You had to stand out in the hallway. Uh, here in the United States, uh, saluting the flag, Pledge of Allegiance was very big when I was coming along. And so every morning before class, that was a ritual that every class in school did. And so uh, people are very patriotic and you don't vote and you don't. And so as a child, too, in the second, third, and fourth grade, you do not understand it. Um, sometimes people would ask us as kids, why do you, why can't you take the birthday cake? And I remember, you know, you would say things like, well, John the Baptist got his head cut off. And they look at you like, what? John the Baptist got his head cut off. That's why you can't take the birthday cake. But that's all you knew. That I mean, that was the only thing that you could remember. That's the only, that's the only way you could explain it. And so, um, you, you, you were basically ostracized, uh, growing up. And as they often say, you know, kids can be cruel. Mm -hmm. And and I, I I will make this statement because <clears throat> it's a it's a group of Jehovah's Witness kids that sometimes I think gets forgotten, and that is Jehovah's Witness kids who may have certain types of handicaps. They may be wheelchair bound. They may have polio. They may have uh, well, they have to walk on crutches. Um, kids in school are just mean to start with. Just with those kids, when you then add Jehovah Witness on top of that. It is absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I think we forget the, the witness kid who was handicapped or in a wheelchair because they really just got it. And mm -hmm. so regardless of who you are, if you grew up in this religion, um, it impacted you. We actually did a, a video a while back that dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses or individuals who were raised as a witness but never got baptized. Right. And we try to be very clear that the organization has no problem using you as an unbaptized person because they count you as part of their eight million. Mm -hmm. And you are persecuted, taunted, treated like dirt all the while you eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve to, to your adult life. And then the moment that you do something wrong, 
the organization disavowed. It's it's like mm-hmm. we have this this TV show called Mission Impossible, where you know when 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 the guy gets his assignment, they say if you get caught, we're gonna disavow knowing who you are. <laughs> right. And and that's where the organization is. The minute a Jehovah's Witness quote raised kid gets caught or gets in trouble, the first thing any witness will say, well, was he baptized? Oh, I don't really matter. Well, yes, it does. Because if you grew up as a witness, you got the same persecution as someone who also got baptized at 18. You just mm-hmm. didn't. But your childhood was exactly the same. I often think about how my experience was growing up on a military base because I remember every day at five o'clock, oh, yeah. the national anthem would play and you would have to stop your car on the base to um, acknowledge the pledge. And my mother would always try not to be on the street during that time because my dad could get, could get in trouble because, I mean, he was in the military. So it wasn't about him not saluting the flag because, I mean, he's serving his country right now, but he's just married to someone who's a Jehovah's Witness. So I think that was probably one of the scariest things. But we I think we did stop. We had to stop. We could You could not be driving your car at five o'clock when they were playing the, the national anthem. So those are the kind of things that we mm. were up against. And I had a teacher and most of my schooling um, up until eighth grade was actually on that military base. Mm-hmm. One of my teachers was retired military and he told me I will not let anyone sit in my class during the, the Pledge of Allegiance. So every morning I had to leave the class and stand outside until the Pledge of Allegiance was over. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of humiliating for a little mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, see, that's, and that's a humiliation that takes place every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every day. When you walk, I remember, man, walking back into class, kids snickering. I mean, you talking about feeling like dirt, mm-hmm. you felt like dirt. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, no, I was just going to say that um, I don't think there's ever been any kind of studies on this, um, so it, it may be a good area to uh, to look at. But the psychological impact, I think, of that um, on a child um, all through their schooling, um, even right up until, you know, they leave school, there's always this separation. You know, it's very isolating um, because you can't be part of that community. Um, I wonder uh, about the psychological impact of on people even you know people like us you know it's kind of formative years we were separated and and you couldn't be involved in the community that that's an excellent point in fact um and we encourage people we, we've always kind of encouraged people uh, when you leave this organization if there's nothing else that you do go to your community college go to some college and now of course we have good online programs but take at least one semester of psychology Mm -hmm. that was the class that that was a very when we started going back we got ready to go to college that was the first class we wanted to take the point that you made is so powerful because one of the things that we learn in psychology class and we really spend a lot of time with our professors is that as humans we develop a defense mechanism and i remember the defense mechanism that I was taught and almost all Jehovah's Witness kids were taught. My, I would come home at the end of the day and you would be crying or you'd be, and my mom would tell me, don't you worry about it, baby. Jehovah going to take care of those kids. <laughs> and so you then begin to look at your classmates when they would say something or laugh. You'd be saying, that's all right. <laughs> Jehovah got something for you. 
And so, um, and, and so, and so you, that was your defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. You knew that all your classmates were going to die. Yeah. And, and to, to think, to, to now look back there as we were, as, as adults and formal witnesses, to think back now to what you just said, what was the psychological effect yeah. of a child in the third grade looking at their classmates and seeing dead man walking? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, it's yeah. unreal. I mean, we've made, we've said about it before. I don't know if you know what I'm going to say, Dad, but um, when mum was like a tiny kid and um, oh, yeah. she was told, well, her teachers took her mum aside and was like, can you tell Sarah to stop saying that Jehovah is going to stamp on you like ants, please? Ooh, wow, wow. <laughs> because wow, they, would, yeah. they would be mean and tease her, you know, because that's yeah. what ki- these, ki- I mean, it's the shared experience of, like you said, JW kids that you get teased and bullied and such and she'd be like yeah coping mechanism don't worry jehovah will stamp on you like ants and you know yeah yeah Yeah. like even as a child she's saying that because she's like you know because she's like a bad kid it's because you get told that you get told things to that that is is your reality isn't it that's that's what you're told that is so true Mm -hmm. so um so okay so Obviously, we could we could talk just about school days. Yeah, I, guess. I know. But, uh, I know, let's I know. let's move on. So um, you uh, you 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 grow up, and obviously you you meet each other. How did you guys meet? What was the um, obviously your two witnesses? Um, was it an assembly or something like that? I always tell people that I was a mail order bride. That's my <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my little running joke I give to people because I remember. There was this couple, because I lived in a rural area in Michigan. It was like 30 miles outside of Detroit. So we had this real classy couple that moves into our congregation from Detroit because they're going to serve where the need is great. Right. And so this sister and her husband had met JT and his roommate at Bethel. I didn't know anything about Bethel like I know now Mm. back then. So she says to me, I got some Bethel brothers coming for the convention. And she said, and they'll be here in about five months. And she goes, and JT will just love you, you know? <laughs> so that's why, I, that's why I'm always saying I was mail ordered or he was mail ordered. Whatever. I was a mail order yeah. ride, whatever. So long story short, the convention comes and they're in town. And she says to me, she says, that these brothers are at her house and she wanted me to come over and meet them. And um, I had just gotten out of a situation with a brother and I was like, okay, no, no more brothers. Um, I need to take a break. So um, she had to beg me to come over there. I got home from work. I'm like, I'm not going to meet no brothers, this and that. So my mom said, so my mom finally talked me into going. She said, I'll tell you what she says, why don't you just go on over there and meet the brothers? And if you don't like the brothers, you can come on back home. <laughs> so then I, so I said, okay, I'll do that. I got back home at 1 a.m. <laughs> I, was, I was over there for a long time, you know? So that's how, you know, I, so I ended up meeting her, meeting him at her house, at uh, this couple's house. Cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And now JT can give you his side of the story. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I get dog when I tell my side of the story. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was when I was at Bethel. That was I, I went down to Lord Diner, to, what we call Lord Diner, for, for dinner one day, and I saw this couple sitting over the table. I knew they weren't Bethel, as you could tell, because they had the New York City uh, Metro map and they had it upside down, trying to figure out uh, is the train going uptown yeah. or is the train going downtown? You know, so <laughs> so I went and introduced myself and told me, you know, you know, take the train, this and that, and so how how to get around in the city. So we just kept talking and they said, well, you know, you know, have you ever been out to, to, to Detroit? And I was like, no, I've never been out there before. They said, well, you got to come out there. And so I said, well, if we're out that way, we'll, we'll give y'all guys a shout. <laughs> well, what Bethelites do uh, when the summer conventions are approaching, you, know, you and your roommate or you and your buddies, you're trying to decide what city you're going to go to because you're not typically you're not going to go back home. So you right. want to go to Los Angeles. You want to go to Chicago, Detroit, you know, Houston, Miami, you know, have fun. <laughs> And so we were sitting there and I said, you know, man, I said, I said, I said, but no, I said, but no, we got a, there was a couple I met, man. That was real nice, man. Let's give them a call. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's how we end up meeting, getting the opportunity to go out there. Well, when we was going out to visit them for where, where Kathleen, uh, Lady C was living at, we did not know. They only asked us, um, would you like to meet some friends? And so we, you know, people always try to introduce you to young people. You encourage them, and, you know, to go to Bethel and all that kind of stuff. So we, for us, it was a regular routine thing. We know we're going to have a whole bunch of people there and we got to explain to them about Bethel. And so it was cool. And so we get there. Um, the brother says, look, um, I got a Bible study that I need to conduct, but I don't have time. Could you guys do this? A young guy. And we said, okay, sure, we'll do it. So we went over to the guy's house, conduct the study. So after the study, he says, look, man, can I show y'all around our little town? And I'm like, OK. So he's riding around. This is the, this is the high school. This is, the, you know, this is the post office. Because the little town was like, where I'm from. Like, man, this ain't nothing. You know, so he said, I'm going out to see my cousin. So I said, OK, that's cool. We're out, we're out to see your cousin. So we get to his cousin's house. We're standing in front of the door. It has a screen door. On it. And he goes up to the door and he rings the doorbell. And this lady comes to the door. And he says, where is Kathy? And I'm like, no, he didn't. You got two brothers asking for somebody's daughter? Man, you must be crazy. <laughs> because Bethelites had that reputation for being playboys. And when we got him back in the car, man, we're like, man, don't you ever do that again, man. We make, man we don't be doing that. You know, I thought you was going to see a guy. We're asking for some woman. Man, what's wrong with you? And so, and so later on at the dinner, that's what we met. At the dinner, and when we got to the couple's house, they had the table set. And when we walked in, we was like, "Hold up, hold up! I only see six place settings. <laughs> I'm counting four of us here already. That means two more coming, and I know they're not gonna be men." And so we was like, "All right, man." We like, we like, but nah. I said, "But not." Nah. We was like, "Just, just play it cool, play it cool." And that's when I ended up meeting her. And so actually. We literally just exchanged numbers and stuff. And we said, look, if you're ever in New York City, you and some of your girlfriends and you need someone to show you around the city, look us up. Mm -hmm. And so we had basically a long distance relationship uh, for three years. We wrote back and forth to each other. And I'm going to tell you, Stephen, um, I really came to understand the difference between men and women. <laughs> um, women many times are more sentimental than men. Let me give you a perfect example. Um, during that time, there was no free long distance calls. Well, now you can make free calls and talk for three hours. Don't mm -hmm. cost them more than what you pay for each month. Back in those days, you paid per minute. So your mm -hmm. phone bill could be $60, $80. As a Bethelite, you only made $80 a month. So you couldn't be spending half your mm -hmm. 
you know, so what we did, we devised this little plan that we would record on a cassette. So Lady C, she would record her voice on the cassette. She would send it to me. I would listen. And then I would record it and send it back. Unbeknown to me, I had no idea until we after we got married. Every time I sent the tape back, she saved my tapes. Of course she did. Me, on the other hand, I flipped the tape over and re-recorded and sent it back, boy. <laughs> I don't have one tape. I don't have one tape, man. Oh, no. Everything she said was... There, our tapes are so messed up. They're so They're old. They're old now. Yeah. I can't even play them oh, back. Oh, man. But yeah, so... But you know what's so funny about those tapes, now that you mention them? We couldn't believe how crazy we sounded. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, we were trying to out-talk each other in our love for Watchtower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We couldn't believe it. Really? I'm out in field service. I'm getting 90 yeah. hours. I got mm-hmm. a Bible study. Oh, this Watchtower mm-hmm. conductor said this. It was crazy. Out spiritualing yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. everything was spiritual. Yeah. Did you notice that paragraph from paragraph six in the Watchtower? That's, you know, I mean, just crazy, man. Just crazy. Um, what I was going to ask you um, about that was, because I, I, I toyed with the idea of going to Bethel when I was a young man. Um, and um, But one of the things that they really tried to um, um, stop was was brothers going to Bethel and getting married quite quickly, you know. So it, it was, um, they they found that, you know, that the sisters were a problem really because the, the brothers would go to Bethel and, of course, uh, as soon as they're in Bethel, then they get assigned to a congregation often and within within a year, um, you know, they found somebody and um, well, they called it the tender trap. Um, and uh, there was uh, that was the message that we got. You know, if you if you think you're gonna at some point or you know reasonably soon want to get married or want to find a wife, you know, don't come to Bethel. Was really the message that we got. Was that was that similar for you guys? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, mm. and, and 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 what you said is true. Um, when you go to Bethel, and, and and when I talk to people who are not witnesses, to just give them uh, some concept of how in the witness yeah. world Bethel mm-hmm. is viewed. Uh, if you are a Bethelite, it's like someone going to Harvard, going to Yale, mm-hmm. going to play for you know Manchester. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that's you are a star because when you travel mm-hmm. around as a single man, you go out and you give talks. You don't come in with a wife. You come in and you sit at the front of the kingdom hall by yourself. And every yeah. sister and their mom was like, he's available. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. and so the, the, the key I found when I was at Bethel is you have to get with the right guys and they will tell you, they will, they will give you the guys who are there. They'll give you a heads up that when you come out to our congregation, cause they told me, they said, JT, we got a lot of single sisters and we got a lot of hungry mamas. <laughs> and so, and so what they'll do. Oh, oh yeah. What they'll do. They will invite you over for dinner cause they know you don't eat at Bethel. And so yeah. you're always over at someone's house and you're seeing their daughters cook, mm-hmm. prepare meals. Isn't she a fine sister, brother JJ? You know, yeah, she's okay. She's okay. She's okay. <laughs> and so, but yeah, that, that we used to, I, I used to see guys get, they would come to Bethel, man, and they would be there just a few months mm-hmm. and, and they just could not, they, they could, they could, they couldn't hold up. Mm-hmm. And, I think and, and, it, it's a really interesting insight into a culture that I think not many people would, um, would recognise, you know, if you've not if you're not experienced. I suppose we should say that Bethel is the um, the headquarters. Um, it, most re- most countries, if they're big enough, or regions yep. have a, a headquarters. In in the UK, it's London. 
Um, and in obviously in the States, it's a, well, it used to be at Brooklyn um, mm. in New York, didn't it? It's moved now. It's moved um, upstate, yeah. Yeah, but um, so that's so it's the headquarters. It's where it used to be all the printing facilities used to be. I guess still are to a degree. Um, but um, so that's that's what we're talking about here. If you're not familiar with what we mean by Bethel, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much exclusively young men, isn't it? There are a few women that are invited, but for very specific things. But it's pretty much all male. Um, and yeah, it's kind of. Um, I've never. Obviously, I've never worked in that environment but I understand it's quite a it's almost like a culture within a culture you know there's lots of um things around drinking and things that I I was quite surprised when I when I heard about all of that it's quite an interesting culture within a culture yeah it is um it you typically are called in at about 19 years of age yeah so if you grew up in a congregation, it was probably, I mean, we had people who were from, from Wyoming, Idaho, and like myself, North Carolina. And here they bring you into New York City. Hmm. Now, Watchtower Farms and Kingdom Farm, and they were different because they were literally out in the middle of nowhere. Bethelites hated to get a sign out there because there was literally nothing to do. At the end, at five o'clock, there was nothing to do. If you didn't have a car, it was your life was, was dead. Because we knew guys who would come down to Brooklyn on the weekends. Because in New York, you had the New York Yankees. You had the space. I mean, you you had New York City. I mean, you got Times Square. Um, and so there was just so much to do. And so you coming from the country or from a small rural town, and now you are free. You're a grown man. You can do what you want. And one of the things that Bethelites can do, because when I went to Bethel, you could drink at 18. They moved it to 21 now. But... It was 18. So when you got the Bethel, he was already 19. So there was unlimited beer. And that was one of the biggest things that I noticed when I was at Bethel. How many Bethelites got in trouble because of alcohol? They lived, as, as we used to say, they couldn't handle their liquor. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, they, they end up throwing up, falling out in the hallway. And, and, and of course, the organization is all about image. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I literally got introduced that by going to someone's room after about being at Bethel for about a week. And we was here in the, here in the United States. We have what's called Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. So after the Bethel family watchtower study, a lot of the Bethelites go to each other's room to watch the Monday Night Football game. And of course, you got the beer, the pizza, and all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time. I mean, when I grew up in North Carolina, someone might buy a bottle of beer, or maybe they might buy a six pack and split it among three or four mm-hmm. brothers. These guys were buying kegs, <laughs> kegs. Mm-hmm. They would take the bathtub and they would fill the bathtub with ice. Put the keg inside, put the little thing up there, and you just feel you, and you give you a plastic cup, and you just drink till it's all gone. It's so, like uni. <laughs> you go to Bethel and it's like going to, yeah. to uni. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, like uni or like college parties where everyone comes it's, it's in. Like, like, it's, it's like a fr- it was like a frat house. I mean, yeah. let me give you just an example. Uh, you ever heard, are you familiar with hazing? Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In New York State, hazing is illegal. Mm. Okay. Uh, it got so bad at Bethel, Dan Sitting, one of the governing body with a deep voice, who is Jehovah, I should obey him. Mm-hmm. That guy, he had to give a special talk at Bethel because new guys, or we call them new boys, were getting hazed so bad. Mm-hmm. You would be in a you'd be in like in the like in the factory. We had these, we had what was called freight elevators. Freight elevator holds like 30, 40 guys. And so at the end of the day, you ride the elevator down, they pick up everything at the top and take you down. 
And so what happened is you would have like new boys up there. It'd be 15, 20, 30 guys up there. And all of a sudden, the guy running the freight elevator, he stopped the elevator. It stops. And all of a sudden, he killed the lights. And at that point, boys, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and, and, and then they turn the lights on. And this guy laying on the he laying on the floor, beat up, and he don't know which brother hit him. And so for some of those guys, you just accept as part of just a just a just a man ritual. But for some Buffaloites, they went home and called their mama. Mama, they ever beat me up, mama. Mama, they beat me up. And the, the governing body was getting so many calls from parents back home to I sent my son to the house of God and he got he got his butt whooped, you know. And so and so as a result, Dan Siddick gave a talk one night. And he talked about how we can't be doing this. This is not the house of God. We don't beat we don't beat our brothers up, you know. But man, Bethel, man, it was crazy, man. I mean, yeah. it could get it could get some wild places up there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's uh, not what people imagine uh, when you talk about. No, it is not. It is not what people mm-hmm. imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think it's very buttoned up in the like extreme version, you know? what I mean, but the, but yeah. Now, 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 perception wise. You're right. Perception wise, because we were actually told at Bethel, I mean, this was a constant thing, especially uh, when the summer semi came up, they would let you know, okay, then brothers, make sure you only take good reports back. We don't need to be letting people know what's going on. This and that. You just have good experiences this year because they wanted to keep that image of, uh, of Bethel was just holier than thou. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the, the misconception that people had, um, I went back home the first year I was at Bethel and people, elders, longtime 20, 30 year witnesses who had never been to Bethel. And during that time, most people didn't know what the governing body looked like. The average mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witness around the world, mm-hmm. they didn't, they'd never seen the governing body. They might have knew Fred Franz, but other than that, all the other members of the governing mm-hmm. body, Carl Klein, Lord Barry, they didn't know who these guys were. No, George Gangas, who are these guys? They didn't mm-hmm. know who they were. And so they would ask, like, a JT? You know, can you see the governing body? Are y'all allowed to talk to them? You know, they live in a special place. And, I mean, it was just crazy. Like, no, nah, man, they live down the hall. I, I used to live down the hall from Fred Franz. Fred Franz lived on the ninth floor of the 124 building. And I ended up getting, my roommate and I, we got moved over there because we were so new. They didn't have anywhere to put us. So they put us on the floor. They had an open room. And it was actually down the hall from Fred Franz. And I remember coming home one day early for what was called a a, a night assignment as a night watchman to eat eat lunch, eat, eat dinner early. And at Bethel, it's like in hotels, all the rooms are open. The housekeepers have all the doors open all the way down the hall. Uh, Cause if you steal something, they'll kick you out. But, and so I came home and I asked the housekeeper, I said, uh, can I take a look at Freddie's room? And she's like, come on down, come on down, come on down. And so I went down to Fred Fred's room, man. I looked in his room. I was like, man, his room looked worse than ours. Cause he had nothing in it. I mean, he, and, and I was really shocked. I was really shocked. He, he just had a couple artifacts he got from different countries mm-hmm. he traveled. But it wasn't what I thought I was going to see, the gold and the silver and everything. <laughs> but I will say this. It mainly revolved around the fact that he was a single man. Because if you went to look at the governing body's home, the governing body's rooms, and just married brothers at Bethel in general, when you would go to their rooms, you could automatically walk in and tell, this guy's married. This guy's definitely married. <laughs> because the only thing my roommate and I had on the wall was the Jehovah's Witness calendar and our vacation days. That was it. No, no pictures, no flowers. My mama said, y'all don't have no flowers? No, let me get y'all a plant or something because this room is just a white, just a white wall. And so, but we didn't care. We just, we just used the room to sleep, man. We was just rolling all the yeah. time. So, and, and so that's the kind of stuff that we saw. Did you, um, did you get a sense? Um, so, I mean, obviously no one can know what's going on in other people's 
mind, really. But um, obviously, with your proximity to the governing body and to the leadership, did you get a sense of how um, sincere they were? And um, I suppose we're all kind of interested in whether they they know what they're doing or whether they're also um, kind of brainwashed. I don't know what your view is. Are they are they true believers themselves or are they um, manipulative? From the perspective I had, I will say this. They all had different personalities. Hmm. Some of them were the nicest guys you could talk to or deal with. And some of the governing body, man, these boys were like, they were like, I'll give you a perfect example. Ted Jarris, Theodore Jarris. He was the most feared governing body. We used to call him general, man. I mean, this guy never smiled. If you were, if you were a nobody, he had nothing to do with you. He rarely spoke to people. If you were a branch overseer visiting, hey, how you doing, brother? Glad to hear you. Know, you're like, man, well, I just spoke to this dude. He wouldn't even say nothing to me. Um, he was strictly Mr. Organization. I mean, we used to joke that this guy had his underwear in his drawer in his room Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's just how organized this guy was. Um, whereas other governing body members, they were more laid back. Uh, two of them, two of them, I got to know a little bit. Uh, his name was um, Dan Sillick. Dan Sillick worked in the personnel department, so he dealt with Bethelites when they had problems when he was depressed. You could go to Dan Sillick and talk to him. When you wanted to get married, you could talk to Dan Sillick. Uh, Dan Sillick was a dirty old man, though. He was, <laughs> we used to call him a dirty old man <laughs> because he would joke around. I mean, I had never seen a governing body member do this. I'll give you a perfect example. We were getting on the group of guys was getting on the elevator. We got on the elevator and there was a long hallway and we heard Dan Slick's voice. Hold the elevator. Hold the elevator. Hold. And you're like, oh, man, we ready to go. We ready to go. So you had to wait till him and his wife came all the way down. Now, Dan Slick's wife, she was from England and she was a much younger sister. In fact, she was the same age as some of the guys I knew run with. So she was so Slick had a much younger wife. And so Dan Sillick and his wife, they get on the elevator and they're standing right up to the to the elevator door. And so all of us are standing in the back and like, please, don't, because you you hope they don't ask you no questions. Uh, did you read your watchtower last week? Oh, no, don't ask me. Oh, God, don't ask me. Because I don't want to lie. No, I haven't read the issue yet. You know? <laughs> and so you sitting there just holding your breath, just waiting for it to get to his floor so he can get off. And then the elevator doors open up. Dan Sillick took his hand and he said, Pap! He hit his wife on the butt. And he said, and he turned around, looked at her and said, You can't do that. And he stepped off the elevator. We almost died. We almost died, man. And I was like, I can't believe he did that. But that's the kind of antics Dan Sillick would do. He, I mean, this guy was crazy. He he was he was such a people's person because he used to play softball with the Bethelites. At Bethel, we would break up into teams. Electric department, cleaning department, press room guys, shipping department. We would actually have a, there would actually be a schedule of when you played certain teams. Dan Sinek probably pitched almost 80% of all the games we played. He would come out during lunchtime and play softball. He was the pitcher and the umpire. He called his own balls. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't argue with the guy. Um, and so the governing body members, they had different personalities. Mm. Um, they appeared sincere, and but that sincerity 
could be misleading. Mm. And now I understand it was. Mm. That they, after reading Ray Franz's book, mm. he brought things into context. Mm. And they realized a lot of the teachings that they had didn't have any legs to stand on. Uh, one, of the, one, yeah. one of the reasons that my wife and I left was because of the generation teaching. Mm. Yeah. In Ray Franz's book, he said that in 1979, 1979, the governing body realized, oh, this teacher ain't got no legs, man. Mm. And they just kept pushing it. In fact, they pushed it so much that if you go right now, and I tell anyone, go and take a look at the May 15th 1984 Watchtower. I know that article because I know all of those Bethelites that you see on that front cover. They're the senior Bethelites at Bethel. And in that article, the generation that will not die. And that was one of the reasons why I left this organization, because I used to have a talk that I gave that my mentor helped me put together. And it was actually centered around that, how we know we're living in the last days. And I used to take that magazine when I was on platforms and I would hold it up and I would say, it is a good feeling to know that I will never die. Now, some of you might be saying, well, JT, how can you make such a bold statement as that? I says, the reason we can say this with such confidence is because God's channel, the faithful and discreet slave, has helped us to understand the deep things of God, that the generation of 1914 will not die out. Man, they changed that thing in 95. I had to get out of here, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was that was my, um, uh, well, it was one of the many things that, that I suppose that was the straw. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't around for the, um, for the uh, overlapping generation debacle. I'd, I'd gone by then. Um, but it was clear that they were, they were trying to work out what they were going to do. So late nineties is when I left. And, um, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I remember, um, giving talks, uh, doing Bible studies with the live forever book, you know, and it was absolutely clear, you know, there was no doubt about it. And I remember saying when I was leaving to a circuit overseer, I said, you know, you've made me a liar. You've made me into a liar and I don't like that. And that was one of the reasons why I thought, yeah, I, I can't, I just cannot carry on with this. That's just absolute oh, yeah. uh, nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's powerful. Um, Lacey, um, so whilst whilst this guy's at, at Bethel um, living this um, this kind of student wildlife, um, <laughs> you're you're trying to uh, so what? So women in the organisation is something that we talk about quite a lot. Um, uh, women in the organisation have very limited. Uh, scope for development, don't they? So, what what were your goals and aspirations? What could you look forward to as a as a sister? Yeah, as a sister, the only thing I could do was pioneer. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when that couple came to our congregation, I think they were so um, invigorating, and they they really you know pushed this idea of doing more spiritually and stuff. And so that's when I really said, you know what, I think I do want a you know, regular pioneer and stuff. And my father was uh, retired from the Air Force at this time. And he did not know um, what he wanted to do, but he was contemplating getting baptized. And so he was working as a civilian on a military base. So the decision was going to be either he was going to find another job so he could get baptized 
because you could not work on a military base, no. even as a civilian, and be a witness. So it was either he was going to find another job so he could get baptized, or and if he if he did do that, me and my mom was going to pioneer. That was our family goal. Right. So my dad was able to get a job, and he got this job. Um, my dad was in weather, so he was a meteorologist. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, he tells me, I wasn't a meteorologist, but he was um, in that field. It was it was like it was one of those things where it was a title. It was title. He did the work, but he said I was a meteorologist technician or whatever. But he 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 briefed pilots and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he ended up getting a job through one of his his connects, because my dad had such a good reputation that when he put the job application in, they hired him. So he got that job in Cleveland. And my mom and dad, they moved to Cleveland, to the Cleveland area. They were outside of Cleveland. So me and my mom entered the pioneer work. And um, of course, I think I had met JT and all that around the same time. Hmm. And I was with, I, I went back and forth to Michigan because when I first got to Ohio, there were no jobs. And I, didn't, I didn't like it. So I went back to Michigan, hooked up with these sisters and stayed with them. They were talking about moving to Maryland to serve where the need is great. And I told them, I said, I want to go too. And so um, they let me come with them and we all moved to Maryland. And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to be with them long. And at that point, um, JT and I were talking, we were kind of courting and I would take the train back and forth from Maryland to Bethel. But as you stated, women don't have much we can do. So the, the biggest thing I got was going to serve where the need mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. And because we don't give talks and I wasn't really into the doctrine the way JT was, mm -hmm. mainly because I was um, not, you know, because of being a female and we didn't give talks. But I was known in my congregation for being able to break down the Trinity. Mm. So whenever people would like, you know, need somebody to help them out with the Trinity, I would be the person that they would ask to help them out with that. Wow. Don't ask me how I did that, but <laughs> I was known for breaking down the Trinity. Yeah. Um, I was good at giving talks for the sisters. So, so the in the in in the the um ministry school they used to have two sisters kind of um, talk to each other didn't they because yep. you weren't allowed to talk to the congregation but you could talk to each other like a little demonstration and that was yeah, yeah. yes and i was good at that i was mm. good at putting them talks together yeah. and so the brothers would always give me last minute a, a parts mm -hmm. can you get this talk out you know so and so didn't show up to the meeting tonight i would be back in the second school with another sister you know, yeah. putting some things together yeah. to give a talk. So that kind of stuff, I was good at that, mm -hmm. giving talks and being out in field service. Mm. The, the sisters she ended up with was an interesting crowd. Mm. Um, all of the girls ended up marrying uh, buddies of mine, Bethel-like buddies of mine. Uh, one of them ended up getting into the circuit work. In fact, uh, if you want to see one of the if you want to see one of the couples. And I, and, I, and I wish I wrote it down. I didn't think about it. But the Watchtower produced a Watchtower article 
is called, and it's easy to find. You can just type it into Google. Are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Uh, If you type into Google, are Jehovah's Witnesses Mm -hmm. a cult? On the cover, there's an African-American couple. Uh, That is Lady C's pioneer partner. Mm -hmm. They went into the circuit work, and he was pulled out of the circuit work into New York, now upstate now. And he is he, he came in as one of the instructors. Sure. So 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 all those girls end up marrying Bethel guys. Sure. Um, and so it, 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 we have. And so when, and so when we left and that's why we when people try to make the argument that you left because uh, you were proud or you weren't sure. doing enough or you wanted position. You know, we just laugh like you must be crazy. Sure. They was working us like a dog. And so it so for us, it was not a matter of problems with per se with people in the congregation mm. you didn't get along with sister davis and even brother johnson no 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 we were we were well thought of as 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 as, as the as as the, as the as the go-to couple mm-hmm. um i was an elder at 27 i was the youngest elder in my congregation all and, and our congregation was unique we had like three or four other ex-bethelites mm-hmm. um we had one guy in our congregation man this guy you talking about a pedigree this dude had a pedigree this guy attended the 1958 assembly when he was five years old. He went to Bethel. He left Bethel and went straight through Gilead. He married a pioneer sister who also went through Gilead. They were assigned overseas in Africa. They was missionaries for a short period of time. He ended up being called into the branch. He was on the branch committee. After he was on the branch committee for a few years, the governing body personally, and this is the only way you get this position, they personally tapped this dude and made him a voting member of the organization. Because of health conditions, they had to come back to the states. Well, this guy was, quote unquote, the PO in the congregation I walked in. And so I'm like, three, four ex-Bethelites, I'm at home, I'm at home. <laughs> and, and so we ran the congregation pretty much like little, like a little Bethel. Uh, the circuit overseer came in. Most circuit overseers were so many times. All the circuit overseers we had except one was a former Bethelite. And it was like, I'm giving y'all guys parts on all this. I know y'all know what to do. And so because I was young, I was just I was just pulled right along. And so that's the kind of way this organization yeah. works. So I, feel like, I feel like oh. being a Jehovah's Witness in the way like JT is explaining it's really helping me to see why I probably didn't like it so much mm. because it felt like we were always at a business meeting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Always under review. Always, yeah. always. Mm-hmm. So what, so for you, um, uh, JT it was, it was primarily the, the generation teaching. And then, and then I guess, you know, as you start to dig, you see more, um, legacy, was that the same for you or, or were there other things, um, that bothered you? What bothered me was the way the people were. I was I'm okay. I'm more of a an individual that looks at human behavior. Yeah. And I if I'm belong to a religion that says that we're supposed to be loving, I need to feel that love. And yeah. I didn't feel that love. Um I feel like because of the kind of person that I was, I didn't get people were not up in my face. Mm-hmm. They were not in my face being me. Mm. But I didn't feel like I was included, even though they didn't necessarily treat me specifically bad. Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel like I fit in that religion. And I would see people and it was clannish and Mm clickish. And it was like you were always being measured 
as to what you were doing or not. And I think that's how I was being judged. Mm. And that was the reason why I might not have been included the way I thought I should. Mm. Because I feel like as an elder's wife, because I wasn't pioneering at the time. Dinks. Um, the brothers of my congregation, when I went to go work, when I went to go serve with Anita's grade, then they were some interesting brothers mm. because what they, when I was, um, pioneering and we had applied to Bethel and, um, we had did our interview and stuff like that. And we didn't get accepted into Bethel. Now my, I, I was the most honest pioneer you could be because I didn't pat my hours. Mm. So um, I didn't I wasn't able to get my time all the time. Right. So the brothers in my congregation, I think that they felt I I really don't think they wanted me to go to Bethel. I think Mm. they looked at me and felt like she wouldn't make it at Bethel because, you know, I wasn't really cut out like that. Mm. But the brother told me, he said, look, you only get married once. He said, if I were you. I would come off the pioneer list and I would plan my wedding and enjoy myself and stuff like that. And I'm like, huh? And um, I wanted to get on to the, the leaving bit because obviously we're, um, we, I don't want to, to, to lose that. Because um, we, we've, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're just chatting away, which is fantastic. We'll have to get you back on. Um, but tell us about what it's like to leave as a couple, because I'm guessing you, you both left at the same sort of time. Is that right? And what, what was that like and how did that go? You know, was that a traumatic experience? Was that a difficult experience? Well, I always tell it like this. Whenever we, we had gotten our, um, we were in business. So I've always been entrepreneurial minded. And so it was during the 90s and everybody was trying to be home based business. And so then JT found this company online and we started trying to get involved with this long distance telephone service where we were selling long distance telephone. And so they had gotten us all set up with a computer and stuff like that. The internet was becoming popular. And then of course, as a Jehovah's witness, what do I, what do I go online and look for? So at this point, you know, we're online and we're at the point at that time, we weren't Googling anything because I don't even think Google was out. But we went online, America Online and stuff like that. And we were looking up stuff about Jehovah. And then just a long story short, we began to read like on Randy Waters, freeminds.org. And H2O was out for briefly. It was a bulletin board. And so we ended up going online and um, learning more about the religion and talking to people who were uh, ex-witnesses who had woke up who realized that they were trying to do the same thing we're doing right now. And um, so JT, unbeknownst to me, I'll let him tell his part, but you know, he's, he's, he's discovering, you know, as an elder and I'm, and as I told you before, I'm looking at the people who are not really who they say they are. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like I'm at this business meeting instead of a house of worship mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So of course, when JT comes to me with his findings, I'm already frustrated, you know, but I had just met a girlfriend at another congregation. It was a friend of JT who was at Bethel with him and we hooked up with them and we started hanging out with this couple. And I felt like his wife was on my level 
because we thought alike. We, you know, we, we had similar co- things in common and we became good friends. And so this is probably the first time where I'm finding someone that lives locally with me that has something in common with. And so, of course, when JT came to me to tell me what he found, my only the reason why I was having a hard time with it was, oh, wow, I'm finally meeting somebody that I like in the organization. And now I got to leave that person. And I wasn't even thinking about leaving my parents because they didn't live. They lived in Ohio and we were living in Alexandria at the time. So um, JT is the one that really woke us up. So you want to go ahead and tell them how you woke up? Oh, yeah. It's pretty much, you know, with, with once you start going online and I, and I I couldn't agree with the organization more. Don't start reading that stuff, man, because once you start, once you start unpeeling the onion, you, you can't stop. Um. But for us as a couple, uh, we were we realize now just how fortunate we actually are. If you are able to leave with your spouse, Mm -hmm. you need to be very, very thankful for that. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because since we have left, which has been over 20 years now, we have met, interacted, had people in our homes, gone to dinner with, been on the phone with, on emails, every type of communication technique that's available today, we've done it with people whose spouse did not leave. Mm-hmm. I have a I have a friend. Um, very he, he comes from a very prominent witness family. Um, when he realizes what he, he he lost he lost a fan he lost his mom. He lost his mom to this blood thing. Mm-hmm. When he when he really understood this was not the truth, he 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 left. He came home one day from work, and his wife was gone. Clothes, shoes, purse, gone. And he, of course, calls his father, his mother, his father-in-law, his mother-in-law, to find out where's my wife. And they say we know she's gone. We helped her move, and they wouldn't let him know where he was where she was at. And so this religion, man, it destroys families. We know people right now where they are literally just holding on by a thread because their spouse is still inside. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to leave with your spouse about the same time, you're very, very blessed. You're very, very fortunate. So so we understand, you know, we understand that everybody is not in our situation. So you really have to empathize for people, Mm -hmm. Uh, women who realize this is not the truth. They never work the job. They can't get up and leave. Uh, men, they may work for the for the wife's father. They can't just get up and leave. So everybody's circumstances are different. And like I said, we're very fortunate that the two of us, we left the same day. The, 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 the night I turned my flock book in and the, the, the presiding overseer, quote unquote, the Kobe, he said, he looked at me and said, you ain't coming back. He said, you ain't coming. I can look at you and tell. I said, I'll be back, man. I'll be back. <laughs> he said, I've seen too many brothers like you leave, man. You ain't coming back. He wasn't mad. He was just smiling like, JT, you ain't coming back, are you? You ain't coming back, are you? But see, I was stuck into that thing where, you know, I was trying to show people that we had not changed and we're the same people that we were when we were Jehovah's Witnesses. So I kept trying to go back into the congregation talking to people. Yeah. So you you um, sort of wrapping up um, for for this podcast. Maybe um, if you're up for it, we can uh, we can carry on our conversation, which would be lovely another time. Um, but um, I'm just thinking about the the difficulties of leaving. I mean, I, I call Jehovah's Witnesses a high control group, um, and I know you've 
you call it a call to at times. I think it is a call. Um, what are the psychological difficulties of leaving such a group? Because, um, um, you know, I think about identity and I think, you know, for, for you, JT, you're a Jehovah, you were Jehovah's Witness, you were a Bethelite, you were a pioneer, you're an elder. Um, for you, Lady C, you know, you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're a pioneer. You, you, all of these bits of your identity um, are then kind of gone, aren't they, if, if you leave or when you leave? Um, maybe um, as I sort of finish, could you tell tell us a little bit about how you you managed to, to sort of piece yourselves together after all of that? Um, that's that's an excellent question because that is the biggest challenge you will face. Mm. As a Jehovah's Witness, your entire identity is tied up in the organization. Mm. In fact, that is probably, in my personal opinion, one of the number one reasons why people don't leave. I can make that statement because of conversations I've had with people who have actually told me, I know what you're saying is true, but I can't leave. Mm. It's because their identity and who they are tied up. Uh, I've had people tell me their wives told them, you're no longer an elder. I used to be somebody in the congregation. And, and you know, he's, he's gone. Um, and so this is why uh, I think my mom probably gave us the best advice. When you leave this organization or when you're about to leave this organization, it is absolutely important that you start to build a new clientele of friends. Mm -hmm. The organization by design has set up a trap mm -hmm. that you get rid of all of your non-witness family, non-witness co-workers, anybody around you that you can actually build a good relationship with. Not an acquaintance, a relationship with. So the only people you have are in the organization. And when they cut the legs out from under you, you fall flat on your face every time. We've seen it. Like I said, this is what bothers us the most about many former Jehovah's Witnesses. Stop. Think before you act. Because one of the things that the organization has done, they have prepared their people for the day that you step to them and question the organization. A Jehovah's Witness, as we often say, is like a Navy SEAL. He can, he's been trained so well, he can put his gun together with his eyes closed. A witness knows how to shut down. And if you are not prepared for that shutdown and it will come, you get lost, you get swallowed up. And so you got to start building a new path for yourself. Going back to school, get involved in your community. If it's politically, if it's religiously, if it's social groups, if you always wanted to be a part of the the, 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 the ladies auxiliary club, join. If you always wanted to be a part of your your homeowners association, join. If you want to go just take Toastmasters, join. But you got to replace your witness friends with someone else. Do not try to do this by yourself. You will probably fail, and we've seen that. Mm. And, and I think that um, when I look at things and because of all the people that I've had a chance to talk to, I, I would like to say when you leave this religion, stop showing up as a victim or try not to. Because when you introduce yourself to a new group of people, oh. they don't necessarily have to know that you were an ex-witness that can't do things or talk to your family. Because I've been getting out here talking to people in different groups and podcasts and stuff. People don't ask you those kind of questions. And when I was going to college, I would just be in a group of people and we would be mm -hmm. talking. And if birthdays came up, you say, happy birthday. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody uh, sneezed, you say, bless you. <laughs> and so nobody really had to know no. that you were all up in this Jehovah Witness thing. Mm -hmm. But when you show up and you look around and you keep telling people, 
Well, I used to be a witness mm-hmm. and I and I couldn't do this. And I nobody really, they're not going to judge you for that. So just yeah. show up and be yourself. <laughs> you know? Sounds like great advice. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, that's great. Yeah, uh, that's true. I think we all go through a bit of a period of we kind of want to, get it all out don't we and, and maybe sometimes we uh we, we do talk at inappropriate moments about that you know not everybody is is really that interested some will be but not everybody is so yeah absolutely um that was some, a yeah, yeah. I, I mean because but that was the biggest lesson that we learned what you mm-hmm. just said mm-hmm. everybody's not interested i think the biggest lie that we were told and we believe is that as jehovah's witnesses we were the center of everyone's conversation. Yes. I, I, when we left, man, I, I I would ask people on my job, does your pastor ever talk about Jehovah's Witnesses? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. And, and we were led to believe that in all these churches and all these religious groups, and you know, we were being discussed. And the same thing politically. You know, yeah, in certain countries you might have problems. But generally speaking, if you're here in the United States, I, I remember living in New York. At the time, they had a, they, they had a mayor. His name was Ed Koch. And the organization was having some problems with some stuff in Brooklyn uh, property and, and getting zoned. And someone asked him, are you going to defend the Jehovah's Witnesses? And Ed Kai said, well, they don't vote. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? So, so they were, yeah. there was of no concern to him because mm-hmm. y'all don't vote. So I don't care what's happening to y'all. That's and right. so that's what I found out is that just how little, mm-hmm. just how low Jehovah's Witnesses are on the conversation scale with people who are not witnesses. They don't Absolutely. talk about us. Absolutely. Well, no, you're, you're definitely right. going to build your, you got to definitely build your self-esteem after you mm. leave this religion. It's, it's a lot. Of, you got a lot to work with. You got, you got a lot to work on yeah. at, when you yeah. leave the religion. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you guys are, you're in business, you work together and um, is that right? Or you, you, what have you done since leaving? What, what are you now? Uh, do you, do you have your own business still, or do you work for? The well, we we have, we have a part time business that we run. Uh, we both yeah. have regular jobs. We both went back to college. We got our degrees. It took us ten right. years because mm-hmm. we only took a class every so often. Yeah. And my wife has an aunt who basically she's like we consider her an aunt. She's really a cousin, but she's like an aunt. And she told us, go back to school if you only can take one semester. If you keep taking enough semesters, mm-hmm. they will eventually add up to a mm-hmm. full college degree. And that's what right. we did. Great. And, uh, you know, we, we were very glad we did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I was working as a, before I started doing the Jehovah's Witness stuff um, full time, I was doing videography. Uh, and I was trying to find my place back into the, um, the realm of technology. So now I've started this um, technology channel called Creative Studio 101. Cool. Uh, computer training is my background. Mm-hmm. And so um, I decided to start a YouTube channel on that. Mm-hmm. And I also have one called Hidden Struggles, mm-hmm. where I um, help people to learn life lessons without going through the experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually have, so we have three YouTube channels now. Mm-hmm. So that will keep you busy, I, I reckon. Yeah. Very busy. Yeah. Right. Brilliant. Well, um, send us the links to all of those and we'll put them on the show notes so that people can, um, can look at your work. I, I love your channel. It's, um, it's always very varied and, um, there's a bit of fun in there as well, which, which is always great to say it's a bit of a sense of humor because it, it, it could be quite depressing, but you always make it fun. So, um, yeah, thank you very much guys for coming on, thank on the show today. It's, thank it's you been so much. lovely to meet you both.
Mm-hmm. Thank um, you for having us on. You're welcome. Awesome. So send us those links. We'll put them on the um, on the show notes so people should check out your multiple channels um, and get to know you too. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>